0: Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, a podcast all about the North American model of conservation and your chance to dive into conversations about trends, research, and outdoor activities. It's time to get wild with the 2021 Conservation Media Award-winning host, Jason Creighton.
1: Our staff will put their hands on about 25,000 deer every single year that are at deer processors, and they'll look at the deer and there's a barcode on there. They'll scan that barcode and it downloads all the information, and they'll get the age of the deer, and that's how we, that's the some of the information we need in order to get our harvest estimates. So it's a very large sample size, very intensive to do, but we need that harvest tag because we got to identify you know, where the deer was harvested, what township, uh, and then who, who was the hunter that, that harvested the deer. Because it also allows us to cross-check to say, okay, did that hunter report his deer to our system? And that's how we come up with the estimates of what the harvest reporting rate is. And that's really important in how we calculate the harvest of deer.
0: Welcome back to the Conservation Unfiltered podcast presented by Conserve the Wild. I'm your host, Jason Creighton, and this is episode number 100, The Inside Scoop with Pennsylvania Game Commission Executive Director, Brian Burhans. <laughs> well, would you look at that, 100 episodes, ah, I have to say, I'm extremely proud I'm grateful, and I'm humbled that so many of you have listened to so many of these episodes. Anytime that something gets to a nice big round number, it's commonplace to make it special. This is a big round number. And I have just that for you this week. And joining me is the executive director of the Pennsylvania Game Commission, Brian Burhans. Brian has been the executive director since two thousand and seventeen. And he came to this position after years of amazing work outside the organization. Today and this week, he's going to let us in on a bunch of different stuff. How rules and regulations are determined, the reasoning behind some of those recent changes, including the concurrent deer seasons for this year. Uh, new marketing and communication strategies that the PGC is going to be uh, throwing out there. And then, of course, we have to get into CWD information as well. That's just what we have to do. I don't want to take any longer for this intro. This is a great episode. Brian was awesome. So let's just go ahead and get started. All right, everyone, as you heard in the introduction, this is a special, special episode. This is episode number 100, and not only that, but my guest today is someone that I think is a pretty big name person. Uh, As you heard, the executive director of the Pennsylvania Game Commission, um, Mr. Burhans, how are you doing today?
1: Oh, couldn't be better. Thanks, I'm so excited to be here today.
0: Uh, I am excited to talk to you. Um, you know, sometimes people look at organizations um, like the Game Commission, uh, agencies, you know, things like that, and they um, see sort of the the people at the top, right, as these inaccessible people. And everyone that I have uh, interacted with, that uh, you have interacted with, has mentioned that you are extremely open and willing to talk to people and a friendly person. And uh, so far in our uh, pre-interview conversations, I, I have to say the same. So that is always a refreshing uh, look whenever, you know, someone that's holding a higher position in an organization uh, is friendly and, and willing to speak publicly.
1: Well, I love people. And, you know, it's a favorite, most favorite part of my job is, you know, talking to hunters and members in the legislature and anybody. I want to talk to anybody I possibly can about how important wildlife and wildlife conservation is to me um, and to our agency. And uh, I just thoroughly enjoy people.
0: Well, let's, let's talk real quick about that, that conservation side for the Pennsylvania game commission. I feel like a lot of people, even hunters don't realize that, the Game Commission manages not just game species but literally every wildlife species that's in the state of Pennsylvania both you know year round and migratory as well. So can you can you sort of speak to that a little bit?
1: Absolutely. You know when the agency was developed in 1895 it was, it was at that time, all species, especially a lot of non-game species, if you look back at that time, there were a lot of birds that were shot for their plumages that were used in women's fashions. Uh, there was a lot of concern and effort put around uh, songbirds and the protection of songbirds, because if you think about it back at that time, that's what ate the insects that ate the farmer's crops. So there's a lot of concern about that. So the agency, you know, the word game is just really a relic, um, a hold back from Uh, that time period when that's what people thought about. They didn't really talk about wildlife. They talked about game. And there's no doubt that hunters were the ones that were pushing for the creation of the Pennsylvania Game Commission. But we've always had a focus on non-game, if you want to call them non-game species as well. And we are responsible for managing all wild birds and wild mammals here in Pennsylvania.
0: Yeah. And, you know, as, as hunters, we like to think in terms of, you know, the game that we can hunt. But, you know, from a conservation aspect, a lot of times the uh, improvements that you make on the landscape for game species also improve non-game species numbers and habitat for them and then vice versa, Uh, you know, by planting pollinator habitat uh, that's good for the butterflies and the bees, it's also going to be good for, uh, you know, non-game birds, game birds, deer, turkey, you know, so it, it really tends to be a sort of a whole ecology uh you know whole world ecology type benefit whenever we're we're working for even a singular species in in your main goal you're still benefiting other species as well
1: absolutely i mean you've got to look at it as the entire system the whole ecosystem of wildlife and if you lose say songbirds or you lose uh you know, some small mammal, you know, it's usually a a result of something that's going wrong. And, you know, so, you know, we use, you know, what are the tools the agency uses? Well, you know, we use seasons and bag limits to manage our game populations, you know, deer, bear, turkey. Um, And that's really important. Obviously, it takes a lot of research and effort to make sure that, hey, when you're the state with the second most hunters in the United States, You really got to watch closely and make sure that you're managing these populations uh, well. At the same time, we have 1.5 million acres of state game lands where we have the authority to actually manage, and the, 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 the reason that we have game lands is for managing wildlife hunting and trapping. That's why they're there in the first place, and overall, it's driven by the agency's mission to manage and protect wildlife in their habitats and promote hunting and trapping for current and future generations. That's that's why we're in business right there is our mission statement.
0: So you mentioned being in business. I feel like we need to have a quick clarification. Um, you know, businesses make money uh, and you know that's their goal. Um, obviously to improve habitat, manage the wildlife, there needs to be money that goes to the Game Commission. Uh, where I know this answer, A lot of hunters know this answer, but where does the game commission get its money from?
1: Well, the big ones are, and like any business, whether you're a nonprofit or a Uh, a government agency and the two governance structures are very similar between the two. If you don't have profitability, you cannot fulfill your mission. You don't have money to hire game boarders. You don't have money to do the habitat work. You don't have money to do anything. Um, So without any type of income coming in, you you, you basically don't exist. When you look at our revenue sources, uh, oil and gas revenue of game lands and timber is a major revenue uh, source. Uh, Pittman-Robertson, which is the federal excise tax off of arms and ammunition, is a revenue source for the agency. And hunting license, hunting and trapping license sales is a revenue source for the agency. So you know, if you look at the Pennsylvania Gain Commission, we, unlike some other states, we do not receive any state tax dollars from Pennsylvania. Uh, we basically operate on our own, uh, except for the federal excise tax, which goes to to every state out there. Um, so, you know, we're in the business to put this conservation on the ground, but it takes money to put that conservation on the ground.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned you know, the federal excise tax. Uh, part of the calculation as far as how much a state gets relies on how many licenses are sold in that state. So you're, you know, other than, um, you know, natural resource extraction from game lands, you're really hemmed in to getting funding from license sales one way or another. That really has a major impact on how much money the game commission would receive in a given year.
1: Absolutely. And if you look at it, the formula is figured out based on two variables, one being the number of hunters and the other one being the size of the state. We're really lucky in Pennsylvania because we have a lot of hunters and we have a very large state. Um, Now, Texas, you know, obviously that's a larger state with, and they just have a, just a few more hunters, not much. We're we're going to be overtaking them here soon.
0: I I would love to hear that. Um, So correct me if I'm wrong, but I I feel like I did my proper research uh, that you have been the executive director for four years now. Um, What can you tell me what your proudest change in those four years has been, or maybe even not something that hasn't changed something that stayed the same? Like what are you most proud of with your work as being the head for the last four years?
1: Yeah. I wouldn't say it's something that I did because you know i only play a small role in this agency you know i've got a board of commissioners that are the ones who set regulations so seasons and bags and any regulation that the agency has is done by an eight member board of directors they're not paid for what they do uh, they're nominated by the governor and approved by the senate and it's this board of directors that sets seasons and bags so you know, for the agency, and, and then the other part of this is the importance of the legislature and the importance that the legislature plays in conservation. So as I look during my tenure, some of the things I'm very proud to see and be part of, because it's, again, I play just a small role in really what happens. Uh, for example, first time we've got Sunday hunting, what a proud moment that's been, um, you know, thanks to the legislature for giving us that opportunity. Uh, I look at the opportunities our commissioners have made for hunters, uh, the different things that they've done to the seasons and back bags, um, that have helped give hunters more time. And when you look at people participating in hunting, and every survey for years and years have shown the same thing, and it shows it in every other state, is time to hunt is the limiting factor because there's so many things that are pulling on our time. You've got the kids, they've got baseball, they've got football, you've got work, you've got so many things pulling you left and right. um, it, It really hurts. Now, some would say, well, you know, you need to prioritize hunting. Well, I don't think you need to make hunting the number one thing in your life to be able to participate for it, or we're going to have a pretty small group of hunters in this state. So providing that opportunity, that's why Sunday hunting has such a big impact. You look at the Saturday opener for rifle deer season and all the opportunities that that provided somebody to hunt a Saturday and a Sunday and a Monday right off the bat Uh, for some who had to go back to work or go back to school on Monday, they got at least two days, uh, which made it worth them time to get to camp and take advantage of that. So there are a number of things, you know, the the concurrent deer season coming up, you know, we know f- from studying the harvest, how deer are harvested, the number of deers harvested, that we could offer concurrent seasons and still uh, maintain control of how many does are harvested. But it, what it did is it made more, provided more opportunity and flexibility from the hunters. And when we look at our surveys and we look at our focus groups, that's what, especially mid-career and early career, hunters were telling us is that we just need more time and flexibility and it would help us stay engaged with hunting.
0: So every year there's changes, right? <laughs> there's always something that gets changed um, whenever you look at the regulations, which hopefully every hunter when they buy their license sits down and reads those changes and reads through the book um, so that they're being compliant with, with the rules and regulations. Um, you mentioned that the, the commission you know, helps determine a lot of these changes Uh what how difficult is it to make these changes and then justify them? Because no, you know, we have enough hunters. No matter what decision you make, someone's going to be upset about it. Um, you know, the the for example, the Saturday opener of rifle season, myself personally, I'm not a fan. Um, it because it changed the tradition that my family had at, at camp. Um, I feel like I'm also I also have enough mental capacity to think about it and realize that, that, you know, these these things need to be done because they affect more people than just myself. Right. So for the betterment of overall, let's hope that that it works that way. And, you know, I, I will just adapt. How hard is it to to make these changes and then try to justify them?
1: Well, the justification is easy because you wouldn't make the regulation change unless you can justify it. Um, but making the changes is always hard because change is always hard. No matter what regulation we put in place, there are going to be some that are impacted in, in, in a negative way, and there's some that are going to be impacted in a positive way. Um, one you know, one things we, we continue to try to improve upon is just pure communications to the public of why these regulations are being proposed and what you know, what it means to the average hunter. You know, when you look at at least my tenure here with the Pennsylvania Game Commission, I've been really lucky to work for a board of directors, commissioners, that have really looked at our regs as how can we simplify our regs? How can we reduce the regs we have and still maintain safety, still maintain um, you know the harvest levels we're looking for? But at the same time, how can we make things simpler for the hunter? Because you know, Pennsylvania is known for having some of the most complex rules and regulations in the country. Um, and a lot of that you talk about tradition. A lot of that has to do with tradition and you know, changing those regs, even though they're an impediment to hunters. Are something that, you know, is you got to look at the bitter bigger picture of, you know, does it benefit the hunters by simplifying regulations and introducing new things like the board of commissioners approved managed dove fields, uh, just a couple of years ago. And we've been putting those on game lands and really didn't hear much discussion amongst the hunters, but I hear a lot now because they really, really enjoy these managed dove fields and what they do, uh, for hunting opportunity. And for whether you're a new hunter or you're a hunter with, who can't get around very well, dove fields is probably one of the simplest and most fun things to get out there and do on the ground.
0: You mentioned a, a sort of step towards trying to improve communication with hunters. That's something that um, I feel like is vitally important because when, when I hear misinformation from hunters, right. When, when they're stating why they made why this is why I think they made the change. It's typically because they haven't been, been informed, right. They're, exactly. they're not informed on the issue. And that's something that personally i feel like has been lacking. And, you know, when I started hunting in, in 1998, you, you didn't, you saw these regulations, you didn't really know why. Um, and of course, you know, as people naturally do, they jump to assumptions. Uh, so what are what are some of these improved communication steps that you're that you're trying to take?
1: That's a great question because it's something we recognized as well, and one of the things we did just a few years ago, we implemented and developed a new Bureau of Marketing and Strategic Communications, and that that's really one of their major rules roles in the agency is to help us get more information, and we send out press releases, it's not really strategic communications the way you would define st- strategic communications but press releases still nonetheless play an important role and we still continue to send those out and you and use those opportunities to educate hunters but through our marketing and strategic communications we can use we're using platforms such as Facebook Instagram Uh, you know we're going to be looking at some other new platforms coming up Trying to get out on the ground more and meet with hunters and get more interactive one on one with hunters. I think that's an area of improvement we're continuing to do as an agency to get out there one on one and work with hunters and meet with hunters. Communications is the most important thing because you're right. If you told somebody the what, I did this, and you don't give them the why, they're just going to fill in the blanks and, and give you the why. And it, you see it all the time. And there is a lot of misinformation not only about the game commission, but about wildlife management, about wildlife. You know, one of the big ones I see all the time is, you know, that birds of prey are killing all our small game. You know, the two really aren't, aren't related at all, but, You know, when somebody sees hawks and they don't see rabbits, they put one and one together. You know, those are examples of things that as an agency, we're working towards to provide better education and outreach to the public to give them better information. Some of these social media platforms, like we have our own podcast here at the Pennsylvania Gang Commission, uh, we're using that as another platform to get information out to people. So anyway, working with the legislature, they have newsletters, we're going to get it, we're getting information out those ways. So we're exploring and using every avenue we can to get that message out there to the public.
0: Okay, so you mentioned earlier concurrent seasons. Um, Last year, uh, we had some concurrent seasons in part of the state Mm -hmm. during rifle season. Now it is statewide. Statewide, right. Mm -hmm. Um, The last time that we had statewide concurrent seasons, uh, back in the, I believe, early 2000s. Correct. um, There were many hunters that were very disappointed in the end result of that, of the deer herd in Um, in certain areas being virtually decimated. Um, And, you know, during that time, the doe license, uh, the antlerless license allocation didn't seem to be adjusted to the fact that there was going to be concurrent seasons, um, which would lead one to believe that that was sort of the cause of the issue. what is being done this time with concurrent seasons to make sure that we don't have a tremendous reduction in right. the deer herd?
1: And that goes back to the misconception about because it really wasn't about concurrent season. Now the concurrent season that was brought on in the two thousands versus a three day doe season. Some some years in the three day doe season you'd hit your your goals as far as harvest. Some years with three days of bad weather, you're not going to hit your goals. So one of the reasons. Now I wasn't here, but one of the reasons that most likely was put in place is to have a better chance to ensure that you met your harvest goals. Now, the difference between 2000 and today is we were absolutely in 2000 looking to reduce the deer herd. The deer herd had grown way beyond what it what it should have ever been. Um, I do remember, because I lived in Pennsylvania during those times, I remember the deer I saw. It was, you know, I remember my first buck I got with a rifle, it's was probably back in 1980, I don't know, I'm guessing 83, 81, somewhere in there. And I remember dragging them back to camp up in uh, Bald Eagle State Forest. And, and I looked at this deer and I, and I had already harvested deer down in Montgomery County where I grew up. I said, boy, this deer is pretty small. And they said, "No, nah, that's just those mountain deer. They're just genetically smaller. No, the darn thing's half starving to death. That's why it was smaller. So they just didn't have any food base to keep them going. The deer herd was just out of control. However, now looking forward to concurrent seasons statewide, we're still looking at our deer management plan and addressing and meeting the demands that are put into the deer management plan. And that's all laid out. It's available on our website for everybody to look at. So it depends, are we trying to stabilize the deer herd in a wildlife management unit? Uh, there wildlife. There are some wildlife management units where we have chronic wasting disease, where we're looking at bringing that down a little bit to alleviate and help us manage CWD. And there may be units at times you know, where we, may allow the population to go up. Um, Pretty much right now it's, you know, we're trying to stabilize the deer herd. So that can be done regardless of concurrent seasons or your three day season or a split season. It's the amount, it's the number of antlerless tags that you are issued to hunters. That's how we calculate how many deer are going to be harvested uh, off the landscape based on the function of time and number of tags. So under a three day season or a one week season, a split season, like we had, you can, issue more tags to harvest the same number of deer when you have current concurrent season you're going to meet the same harvest numbers you're going to you're going to decrease your number of antlerous tags somewhere around the 10 to 14 percent range um, so the math works out the same what it does is it just gives people more flexibility of when they can harvest their doe um, for the most part i think you're going to see hunters behave like they typically do on opening day of buck season. They don't wanna square away that buck, so they're probably gonna hold off on a doe. Maybe not, maybe so, but this is nothing new. We've been able, we've had season, uh, concurrent seasons for a couple of years in the state. We've had concurrent seasons in the past. Our scientists have had a lot of data to work with to understand what the behavior of hunters and the impact of the number of antlers tags and, and to reach our harvest numbers.
0: Okay, yeah, uh, our family cabin is in 2F. Um, and mm-hmm. this year um, with concurrent, the, the available antlerless aller, uh, license allocation was reduced this right. year, which um, whenever I heard concurrent, I was initially concerned because our area had a very, very large reduction needed to happen. But it felt like it went a little too far. Um, and then when I saw that that lowering, it made me feel a little bit better from that sort of, yeah. you know, sort of scientific aspect of it. Um, so so that's good that I, I'm glad to hear that, you know, the the people working within the Game Commission and, and the scientists are, are looking into that and keep, you know, sort of taking that into effect.
1: Yeah, if you think about it, the allegation that we're trying to decimate the deer herd just doesn't make any sense at all, if you think about it. Deer hunting is the driver. That is what drives hunting in Pennsylvania. Um, what we got to make sure is we manage the herd because we want to have a sustainable herd. We've got CWD that we're dealing with and deer do have impacts on other species of wildlife, you know, rough grouse, you know, they're deer browse. You know, there's areas I'm going to look at one of the areas uh, Friday morning with staff and uh, up north of State College on game lands where we're just not able to grow anything. We cannot get any regeneration because the deer have just decimated everything. At the same time, it's the game lands I get complaints from hunters that there's no deer. Well, there's some animal eating those trees and well there's deer droppings next to it and a deer tra- tracks on the other side and I'm pretty sure it's deer so uh, it's a real challenge and you talked about it earlier you mentioned you know that the uh, seemed like when they brought the deer herd down it was too much and it is a shocker when you look at what the forest can support versus what we had before and that reduction you know the deer is still there there's still plenty of deer to, to hunt but yeah it may take some time you're not going to see 40 deer a day you may only see or two or three a day or maybe every over over a course of five days um so yeah you're not seeing the number of deers and that's what creates a lot of angst with hunters and I get it too I'm a deer hunter and I like to see lots of deer but I don't there's no way you can have both you're going to give up something so if you have too many deer you're going to give up deer health you're going to give up wildlife habitat and one of the things you see in Pennsylvania because the deer herd was so unrealistically high for so long it actually changed a lot of the composition of our forest I can take you to uh up in Clinton County and elk Elk County, where based on the timing of when that forest was cut and what came back, you didn't have any oak trees come back whatsoever. It's solid maple because the oaks were one of the first things that the deer liked to take. You had beautiful mature hardwood oaks around it, but nothing but red maple in between just because the deer hammered everything. Up near my camp's a good example. (laughs) Beautiful hardwood forest that was harvested, thinking about mid eighties and they did not put deer fence around it. And it is solid birch trees over probably it's got to be 700 800 acres now can anybody tell me what the value of a birch tree is to white-tailed deer rubbing their antlers is about the only benefit there there's no food there's no cover right now it's in a pole stage there's no cover at all so you know that's a large tract of forest that has been altered by white-tailed deer uh, herbivory that you know really isn't going to have much value to wildlife.
0: And if anyone's interested to uh, know what the game commission and Penn state university are doing to study that um, they can check out the deer forest study program with uh, Dwayne Diefenbach and and Janine Flegel run their blog. It's awesome blog. Everybody's got to
1: check that out. It's absolutely outstanding. You'll learn a lot about deer.
0: Yep. Both former guests of this podcast too. If you want to reach back into the archives to listen, Um, I I can't, (laughs) I can't go. Uh, without bringing up CWD since you already brought it up um, that we have CWD in the state I feel like people are finally getting the picture that it is it is here um, and it is a problem and um, and basically the game commission wants hunters to help. So what can hunters do to help the C, you know the CWD issue in our state?
1: Well, if you're hunting a couple things first if you're hunting in a disease management area uh, you know we have drop boxes please drop your head off tagged head in the drop box so we can test it for you it doesn't cost you anything um, that's what allows us to you know look at prevalence rate how common is cwd in the population uh, for example in dma2 um, this past year thanks to hunter and their their participation of giving us those samples Uh, we're looking at about one in seven deer were positive adult deer harvested were positive for CWD. We, you know, this is, this is a serious disease and that's why we've put so much effort into doing everything we can. I am, I have been very pleased with, you know, we've, as an agency, have worked very hard to provide good information to the public. We actually hit the pause button for a period of time to really get out there and network, get on the ground, talk to hunters, inform them. And I'm really seeing much better understanding and appreciation for the seriousness of CWD in the hunting community. So another, besides providing us your head in the drop box, uh, is do not take the high-risk parts out of the disease management areas. First of all, it's it's against a regulation, so it's a citable offense. Um, but, but cwd can be spread by those high risk parts the brain the spinal column the spleen so leave those in the dma um, and we do have some dumpsters available for hunters to put their parts uh, in that the high risk parts in there as well Um, those are two big things hunters can do to help us stop the spread of cwd
0: okay so my my question is this you mentioned that if hunters are are hunting within one of those dma areas we we want them to put that that head in the container Mm -hmm. to be tested um our family cabin is roughly a mile outside of the border of one of those dma areas Mm -hmm. if we would like to get our head like i'm assuming we should not be putting our deer head in there
1: right oh you're outside the dma we are outside of the dma you can put it in there
0: we can Absolutely. put it in there.
1: Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. If you're outside the DMA, you can take that head into DMA and drop it in there.
0: Oh, so anyone can put their uh-huh. deer head in any. Okay. See, I did not. I was under the impression that um, if you were outside of DMA, you were not supposed to put it in there, that you could do testing, you know, send your deer head to, you know, Harrisburg and, and have it tested but would have to pay for no, it. No, yeah, you
1: can bring that in. It's not like, so the DMAs are structured as far as the distance, a pretty good ways from where a positive was found. So mm-hmm. we have some assurity that, you know, the CWD is not outside the boundaries, but certainly if you've got a head and you want to have it tested, that only helps us, you know, f- with further detection on some of those other areas.
0: No, that's great to know. And uh, if one of those, uh, it, like, let's say I put uh, a head into, uh, a dose head into that collection box and it comes back positive, um, I will be notified. You will be spider. notified. Yep. And we, I feel like we have to preface that there's no scientific research that says that CWD can be passed from deer to humans. However, some people may decide they don't want to consume that meat of that deer. It'd be good to know, you know, those results, which is, you know, it's twofold for my aspect. I would like to help the Game Commission any way I can to determine where CWD is in its spread. I would also like to know and be able to make that informed decision for myself. If I want to eat that meat, um, now here's my next question about adding, uh, you know, putting a head into that box. I feel like, and I don't know if you have statistics on this uh, readily available, but I feel like the vast majority of heads that you're going to get in those boxes are going going to be from a doe, because if it's a buck that someone shot, are they really going to want to put those antlers into into that box? Like, or can can they get those antlers back? Um, you know, what, what's the process there?
1: <laughs> yeah, they not, they need to remove the antler from, from the okay. animal. Yeah. So they're not going to, we have no way to get back to the hunter. Um, and at the same time, re, we realize that, you know, we're going to miss some in the drop boxes, but we do other sampling as well, mm-hmm. whether it's at processors um, that we can get that information. And if you think about it, it all has to do with sample size. How many samples do we need to have an accurate estimate? of what prevalence is in, in, the, in the deer herd. So we don't need to test every deer in order to determine what that prevalence is. We can take this smaller sample as long as it's large enough uh, to give us an estimate of prevalence.
0: But at the same time, you're not going to deny more samples from hunters?
1: No, bring them on. Yeah, okay. bring them on. You know, if anything, this is also a service to the hunter. You know, do realize that the testing that are that is done on these deer heads is not a food-grade Test. In other words, what we're not saying is, no, if it comes back, not detected, which is what actually it's either positive or not detected, not detected doesn't mean it doesn't have cwd it means we can't detect it you know it could be there but it's such a low level the testing isn't sensitive enough um, that it is able to detect it but if it comes back positive yeah it it has cwd no issues there so do realize it's not a food grade test but you know i would test i test my i would have my deer tested and if it was if it came back not detected i feel perfectly comfortable eating the deer no issues whatsoever
0: Yeah. I I mean, I've gone back and forth in my head about that. Like if I had a deer that tested positive, like, would I eat that meat? Um, and I think I'm at the point now where I would still consume the meat myself. Um, but I don't know that I would share it with other friends outside of my Mm -hmm. family. Um, I don't know that I would feel comfortable doing that. And I know I would not be comfortable feeding it to my son. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I feel like I can take that informed risk. Um, but I wouldn't want to put that. Possible risk on anyone else. Uh, okay. So, one of the big changes that um, really recent as of this recording, I think was just announced uh, a day or two ago, is that um, hunters can now carry a digital copy of mm-hmm. their licenses um, that they can access through the Hunt Fish PA um, through Hunt Fish PA. Um, my Can we, can you just give us a little bit of clarity on exactly how that works? Because we still have to tag our deer and bear and turkeys, right? So how exactly is, is that going to work for hunters?
1: Well, your harvest tags for turkey, bear, deer, you're still going to get those in the mail. So you still have to use your tag to tag your deer, bear, turkey. Um, uh, However, the license itself, you can either go onto your profile, go onto HuntPA and, Huntfish PA and download the PDF or you should be getting an email soon about how to download it as well. And you can download it and have it on your phone. So, if, you know, this is really great for, you know, we have a lot of small game hunters that just want to go pheasant hunting at the last minute, they can go on their smartphone, get their license. Boom, they're done. They don't have to, they can get their pheasant permit and hunting license in a few minutes. They're done, they're going hunting the next day, or they can sit in the parking lot before they start hunting, actually order it. They don't have to go anywhere and boom, it's done. For your harvest tags, they will physically come to you. There's a reason why we need, especially for deer, why we need that harvest tag. Our our staff will put their hands on about 25,000 deer every single year that are at deer processors. And they'll look at the deer and there's a barcode on there. They'll scan that barcode and it downloads all the information and they'll get the age of the deer. And that's how, we, that's the some of the information we need in order to get our harvest estimates. So it's a very large sample size, very intensive to do, but we need that harvest tag because we got to identify, you know, where the deer was harvested, what township, uh, and then who, who was the hunter that, that harvested the deer. Because it also allows us to cross-check to say, okay, did that hunter report his deer to our system. And that's how we come up with the estimates of what the harvest reporting rate is. And that's really important in how we calculate the harvest of deer.
0: Uh, that That's a that's a very good point. Now, I, I noticed because um, I actually just went on before, uh, onto Huntfish PA before we started recording and downloaded um, all, all my licenses, because mm-hmm. I like to keep my license in my uh, deer hunting pack my big game pack but I'm also a pheasant hunter now I won't have to worry about did I remember to get out of the pack did I not <laughs> right I can just take my phone I have it there um, I noticed that the harvest tags are also available to be downloaded um, can you just print out like for no. the for the for the antler list license you can't print out and then tag your deer with one that no. you printed okay
1: no you have to use the durable okay. waterproof tag that we send you
0: gotcha okay all right that's that's Good information for everyone to know. Um, One of the things that I think a lot of people miss about hunting in Pennsylvania, when when anyone thinks about hunting public land, they think about the West, because Mm -hmm. the West has a ton of federally owned public land, and they don't realize just how much public land is accessible in Pennsylvania. Um, So just to to throw some numbers out there, it roughly it's over one and a half million acres of state game lands that is owned by the game commission that you can hunt on. Um, There are 2.7 million acres of state forest and national forest, the vast majority of which that you can hunt on. Um, We also have, um, while it's not public land, it's publicly accessible, the hunter access program that the game commission has with private uh, landowners. Um, And that's I think the last time I looked, it was over 2 million acres.
1: Yeah, about 2.5 million acres.
0: So can you explain to everyone um, how that hunter access program works for landowners and then also for hunters?
1: Sure. It's a voluntary program. You can go onto our website in the mapping section and look at the approximate locations of where these hunter uh, access opportunities are. But it's important to understand that you still need permission. Um, You know, there are some areas that, for example, we do release pheasants, but they are on our map and you don't need permission for the ones that are on the pheasant stocking map. So you're good to go there. Um, But that's an agreement we have with the landowner in order for us to stock pheasants um, that they have to leave it open to the public. But the other hunter access properties, you have to knock on the door and still get permission. And really what the landowner is truly agreeing to is that, yes, I'll keep my land open to hunting. Um, but for the most part, most of the landowners want you to knock on the door and ask permission. Uh, I did that this spring. I spent a whole day and a half knocking on doors and trying to secure some spots for some turkey hunting. And, uh, you know, you got to knock on doors. And in fact, one of the biggest responses I got from landowners was, wow, you know, thank you so much for asking. You know, we're really full up with hunters. We really don't have any room. But. I appreciate you asking. So these landowners really appreciate and and you and you have to otherwise you're trespassing you need
0: to have permission to be on those lands. So do I feel like this is a a, a misinterpretation of how it works. Do the landowners get paid by the game commission to enroll in the hunter access program?
1: Yeah, they do not. Okay, no, but they they there
0: there are there are some benefits. Right? There are
1: some benefits. they will get you know when we can. We provide game news, uh, our magazine to them. Uh, there are times when we can provide them with seedlings that they can use to enhance wildlife habitat on their properties. Um, but that's really you know really the benefits that are there from them. Most of the public access landowners that I interact with and talk to, uh, you know they. They just support hunting, uh, they support the agency, and they recognize the importance of hunting. You know, on some of them, it may be just their family that hunts it there, but it is open to hunting. One of the challenges we're seeing in Pennsylvania is as more and more lands are closed down to hunting, uh, especially around agricultural areas, I notice the most is you have no ability to uh, manage the deer herd in that or you you lessen opportunity. So for example, you know, a farmer is trying to grow soybeans and corn and he's got his neighbor who has 100 acres that he locks up and doesn't let anybody hunt. Well, guess what? When people start hunting deer on the farmer's property, guess where all the deer go? well, deer are pretty smart. They go right to the property where they know they're not going to be molested or harassed. And they deer just wait till the season comes up, uh, is closed. And then they move, they move back out. So it, it really is a creating more and more of a challenge here in Pennsylvania because of the land that's not accessible, uh, to hunters. And that's really a challenge for deer management.
0: Now, I, I will say I spent some time this spring as well, trying to find some local hunter access properties for spring Turkey. Um, and I, I do have, uh, a quick, uh, a little bit of a gripe about the program. And that is that it's, while the interactive map that is on the website is awesome to be able to see, you know, where these properties are based on dots. Um, there are, and I understand these landowners don't want to necessarily provide their names and phone numbers and addresses, right, publicly. Um, so there's just dots where these are. and. The, the issue that that I came across multiple times uh, in trying to find these properties is there was no signage for these properties to tell me this is the house that I need to actually go to to get the permission. Right. right? Um, so is there a way that the game commission can sort of try to encourage the landowners to put the free signs actually out so we can we can actually find them and, and try to legally come onto their property.
1: Yeah, this is done basically based on landowner input when the program you know, was looked at about a decade ago, um, you know, upgrading the program. And that was one of the things that the landowners were clear that, hey, if you're going to tell people where I live, I'm out of the program. Um, I'm not going to get into it. Um, so yeah, there's some, it's not a perfect, it's not like game lands, you know, where game lands are. They're on your Onyx maps. You walk out you go hunt game lands. You're good to go or state forest or national forest. So we know where those are, but that is the challenge. You know, I, I spent that day and a half knocking on doors. I didn't get permission on any of them. So um, saw met a lot of great people and, and saw a lot of great land, but you know, it's just tough. And uh it, 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 it it's almost, you know, in so many ways, this program is a goodwill way to keep landowners engaged in the Gain Commission, to keep them informed on what we're doing. And there are a lot of people that do get access. And there are people that do post, so I've been by many, many uh, landowners in our public lands program, or in our land access program, that post right there, hey, I'm in the program, enjoy your hunt. So it's, you know, it just depends on the landowner.
0: Okay. Um, so what, what have i missed what what is something that you really want to make sure that that listeners both hunters and non-hunters are aware of when it comes to the game commission in 2020 2021 sorry
1: you know i think there's a there's a bunch of things uh you know that we're doing look at r3 your retention recruitment reactivation of hunters there's a lot of movement there and a lot of work we're doing uh with those activities um you see in the rules and regs You know, when you look at the saturday opener which i know everybody doesn't agree with i, I get that um the uh mentor hunting, expanded mentor hunting opportunities. So we used to be very restrictive as far as mentored hunters and what they could hunt. Um, And in fact, what the younger hunters couldn't even hunt deer, which, you know, that's the number one driver. Um, So we're, we're the regular regulatory process has really been trying to address that to make it easier for people to get engaged. We also have some new learn to hunt classes. Uh, we offered one uh, virtually uh, just a couple of weeks ago on squirrel hunting. We had over 500 people sign up for that class. There's a lot of interest. In fact, we had an in-person class a week later. And um, as the course was getting ready to start, staff noticed a vehicle driving through the parking lot pretty hurriedly to get up here and come in the building. And uh, one of our staff asked him, are you here for the learn to hunt? He says, yeah, I was on the virtual. I'm from Philadelphia and I drove all the way up here and traffic was bad, but I couldn't miss this. The virtual was great and I want to learn more. So there's a real need for people who are interested in hunting to learn more about. And I think that's an important part of our, our three efforts is to provide those educational opportunities. You know, when I grew up hunting, you know, my dad hunted and uh, my neighbor hunted. So I had people to coach me and take me hunting quite a bit. But there's a lot of hunters who do not have access to anybody to mentor them. Um, and this is a great way to provide those opportunities for that Um yeah, so you're going to continue to see us with a more of that emphasis on R3 as far as what we can do to educate hunters, give them information, everything from, you know, hopefully we talked about before the podcast about the locovore opportunities where people are really interested on in how do I cook these animals that I just harvest. How do I clean them? How do I cook them and prepare them? So it's something good because as we know by nature of game, which are typically lower in fat, there's a lot of ways to mess up game where it doesn't taste very well. Um, I've had people actually tell me that wild turkey doesn't taste any good. And I'm like, well, you get a turkey, give me a call. I'll take it because it just doesn't get any better than that. So, you know, I think expanding hunters opportunities and knowledge bases will be a, a, a big plus for the hunters and, and hunting in general, you know, and I think the other thing, you know, I'd like to, you know, people to know that, you know, we're here to listen. We do have numerous ways for hunters to provide your opinions, whether it's our general comments, which is, you know, our email, um, you know, you can send us a letter, you can give me a phone call, you know, we're, we're here to listen and know that just because the commissioners don't necessarily vote the way you want it doesn't mean they weren't listening, but they're making a decision. And, you know, I think that's the last thing I, I think I'd love people to know more about is our board of commissioners. These are really dedicated private, you know, individuals that that are brought to the board and really do a a tremendous amount of work. And they do listen and they talk to a lot of sportsmen and they have a tough job to do. My job's easy compared to theirs. Uh, They have a tough job to do because they're balancing, well, what do the hunters want? What what do the surveys tell us? They're looking at the numbers and what what change in regulation might do for R3. They're looking at safety aspects. They're looking at the wildlife management aspects of how is this gonna impact the herd? So they've gotta balance a lot of information in their decision-making.
0: Uh, That's all good stuff. That's all great stuff. So what you're saying is that when someone, you know, makes a phone call or sends a letter or an email, there's someone reading it on the other end.
1: I read them all. Every general (laughs) comment. I take every phone call that comes in my office. Um, You know, uh, you know we're here to respond and to be accountable to the hunters. Um, and just realize that it's, you know, for every individual hunter that feels one way, I got a dozen that feel the direct opposite. So, you know, um, you know, I have all kinds of things come up as you can imagine. I mean, everything from the issues with, Birds of prey supposedly taking all the small game you know those are biological issues that that we need to do a better job of getting and informing the public about those things too you talked about concurrent season getting public to understand what the role of concurrent season and why it's so important to manage that deer herd at a level where we can have healthy deer and healthy habitat and that's really what deer management comes down to is healthy deer healthy habitat Um, and realize that wildlife is in the public trusts whereas Hunters play such an important role, a critical role in managing wildlife. It is what we call in the public trust. In other words, it belongs to all the citizens of Pennsylvania. That white tailed deer belongs to the person down at the corner who doesn't hunt at all, just as much as it does me as a hunter. Um, That's the way wildlife management is designed in North America, and it's worked very, very well.
0: All right, one last question, and this is going to be a very easy one for you to understand or for you to answer. Are there mountain lions in Pennsylvania?
1: There is no breeding population of mountain lions in Pennsylvania that we're aware of. Okay. <laughs> that one just kills me because there's some of my favorite social Facebook uh, things that talk about mountain lions and people want to believe it. And I'm not going to say to anybody who claims they saw a mountain lion that they didn't say it see a mountain lion. I'm just not going to say you're not telling the truth or that you didn't see what you said you saw. But it's usually from... A report they got from their cousin's brother's nephew's neighbor four times removed if you notice. But you know if they saw it okay they saw it but we have not come uh, any evidence. Now are there lions that somebody may have in captivity that got out? Yep very plausible. Is it possible for a mountain lion to come from the Dakotas over to Pennsylvania? Yes you know it did in Connecticut not long ago. These, these animals have huge home ranges but do we have a breeding population? Think about this pennsylvania is the most highly dense roaded state in the nation we have more game trail cameras out there than just about any because look at the number of hunters that we have out there and there's just no support that mountain lions at least from a breeding standpoint are here in pennsylvania i don't think they'd make it number one because they end up getting hit by a car pretty soon
0: Good, that that's a good end that's the kind of answer I was looking for uh Director Burns thank you for coming on thank you for the service that you're doing uh, I know that it can be very underappreciated um just because of the vast differences in opinions that that hunters have. Um, So thank you for the service. And uh, thank you for taking time to talk to me. I really appreciate it.
1: Hey, I thank you for having me on here. I'm humbled to be part of this agency humbled every single day I get up. And thank goodness that we have all the different uh, discussions and opinions about wildlife management because it's there for one reason. Hunters are passionate about wildlife and thank God for that.
0: Absolutely. Thank you. we keep going a real quick question for you are you concerned with urban sprawl are you concerned with the threat of our increased human presence has put on wildlife and wild spaces if so an easy next step for you to try to help with this situation is to visit our patreon page and become a monthly supporter if you like this podcast if you would like to help form a new nonprofit that helps combat and mitigate the effects of urbanization? Visit patreon.com slash conserve the wild. That's patreo dot com slash conserve the wild. Go visit today and become a sponsor. Another episode in the books and, you know, the another episode meaning it is the official 100th episode. I have a couple real big thank yous this week. First, I have to thank Brian, obviously, for taking the time to talk to me. It's always great to see the head of a state agency being open and willing to explain how the agency works, why decisions are being made a certain way. And everything that just really goes into it, and I really enjoyed this conversation. I see this increase in communication that that the him, he is he and the PGC are trying to uh, put out there as, without a doubt, going to be helping to alleviate some of the misinformation that has spread in the hunting community in Pennsylvania in, in uh, you know years past. Second. I got to thank all the other guests that have come on the podcast over the, you know, past 100 episodes, you know, from my father and grandfather, uh, to some other friends and family members, uh, to, uh, all the different, uh, researchers and biologists and people from other nonprofit organizations coming on. It has been absolutely awesome. And, uh, I, I can't be more grateful. For all of them coming on and and talking to me and being so knowledgeable, and then last but not least, I have to thank everyone who listened. You, the people that are listening now, um, you know, without people willing to listen to what I feel is important information and also interesting information, this podcast wouldn't have lasted ten episodes. And you know, we're at a hundred now. It's truly been an absolute pleasure being able to bring you this information over the last two plus years and definitely look forward to more and more episodes. I'm having an absolute blast putting these together. So until next week and for the next 100 more episodes, get outside, take someone else outside, and as always, stay wild.